0: Uh, Welcome to Valley Life. My name is Adam Young. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our study in the book of Ruth. Now, everybody loves a good story. Now, not all of us love to consume stories or receive stories in the same way, but everybody loves a good story. Some of you love a good story in written form. Now, even in saying that, there's disagreement about how uh, you like your written form of stories. Um, just out of curiosity, for those of you who do like to read, how many of you are like digital only? I want to read my books on a Kindle or on Apple Books. Show of hands, how many of you are like, I'm only reading digital? Not great representation. There's only a couple of you. Uh, how many of you are like, no, if I'm going to read, I need the paper book in my hands? How many are paper book people? Whoa, I was not expecting that. I'm a paper book person as well, um, but I really, I wasn't expecting that. But we we love to receive stories in different ways. Some of you are like, I don't want any kind of book. I want it in a two-hour theatrical format. That's how I like my stories. Some of you are like, I prefer my stories told on stage. Middle Park High School just had their uh, plays this weekend. Um, My wife and I Um, literally just this week, uh, booked a trip to New York City, which I've never been. She had been once um, for a celebration and we already bought tickets to see Wicked on Broadway. It was just one of my wife's all-time dreams. And um, so everybody loves stories and loves to receive stories in different ways. And no matter how you like to receive your story or what kind of story, some of you, um, just so you know, and two days is Valentine's Day, men, this was your warning, okay? No excuses now, and it's too late for Amazon, so you're going to figure out something else, okay? You got two days, Uh, but some of you are binging love stories right now, as bad as you do Christmas stories in December. Some of you, men, you're going to have the pleasure and opportunity, okay, you're going to be forced on Tuesday to watch The Notebook or something like it, okay? Um, So regardless of what kind of story you like or what format you like to receive it in, all great stories have the same components. There are certain things that make a story great, that capture our attention. A good story is going to set the scene. It's going to give you the setting so that you can almost feel like you're there in the midst of it. A good story is going to set up and build up certain characters. Sometimes they're heroes, sometimes they're villains, but we get to know details about the characters and we get, we get bought in and brought into their lives. Any good story is going to have conflict and any good story is going to have resolution. A story is going to be told from a certain viewpoint. Sometimes it's told from the viewpoint of the main character. And so as an audience you are being surprised that every twist and turn, just like the main character is, sometimes a story is told from a third-person perspective, from the narrator's perspective, and so you actually know details about people's inner thoughts and feelings before they do. And every good story is carried on by major scenes along the way. Last week, Dustin opened up the book of Ruth for us, and in the opening chapter, in chapter one, um, we were given the scene and the setting and the major plot or the beginning of the trajectory of the story. Now, if you weren't here, in just a few moments, I want to give you a snapshot of what Dustin talked about last week and the set the scene for this story, so that as we continue telling the story, you're not lost. And as we go and begin in. Uh, the book of Ruth, we open the scene in a place called Bethlehem with two individuals, Abimelech and his wife, Naomi. Abimelech and Naomi have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And then we see some initial conflict in the story because there's a famine in the land. Now part of the setting or the scene for this story is that it's happening in the time of the judges. Historically, that tells us it's happening about 1100 BC, but more than that, it tells us that this is not a good time in the history and the life of the Israelites, Because as a nation, they're going through these repeating cycles of rebellion. And to get their attention, uh, God often allows tragedy to strike the nation. Sometimes that comes in the form of a foreign army invading their land. Or sometimes it comes in the form of what they're experiencing now, which is great famine. So Abimelech and his wife Naomi and their two boys leave their home. And they go to a foreign country called Moab because they're forced to, to provide and to feed their family. It's there that their two boys marry two women who are not from their people group or their country. They're Moabites. They don't follow the same religion. They don't have the same cultural uh, norms and beliefs. But their two boys marry two women, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. Now the Bible actually doesn't tell us which son marries which. This is probably how it was, because in Hebrew writing, word order and name order matter. So this is probably what it looked like. And there is this family living in a foreign country, just trying to ride out the famine. But the scene gets darker, because Abimelech passes away. And so now Naomi is a widow. But the scene's going to get even worse because now both of her boys are going to die. And so we're left with Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws who don't share a culture, who don't share a worldview, and initially wouldn't have even shared the same language. But... Naomi decides, I'm going to go back home. I'm gonna go back to my homeland where I was born, where I was raised, where I have extended family members. And she had heard that the famine had let up. And so she decides she's going to travel back. And she tells her two daughter-in-laws don't come with me because I have nothing to offer you. I have no money. I don't have any other sons or male relatives that I know of that I could, I could offer to you as a husband to care for you and protect you. Go back to your families here in Moab. Let me go to Bethlehem. Let me go to the, the nation of Israel. My people, let me go alone. Orpah says, okay, I'll miss you. They cry, they weep, they hug, but she goes home. But Ruth says, No. I'm going with you. Where you go, I go. Your God is now my God. Your people are now my people. And as God is my witness, where you're buried, I'll be buried. And so here's how we get towards the end of Ruth chapter 1. So she, this would be Naomi, said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi's birth name in Hebrew means pleasant, Mara means bitter. And that's how we close out the first scene of this story it's dark, it's heavy. You can just feel the weight and grief that rests on these women. And so today we're going to go into chapter 2. And here's how chapter 2 begins. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now this is in the story where the audience is given a piece of information that the main characters in the story don't know. We are given this small ray of light in the midst of the personal darkness that Naomi and Ruth are living in. Because Naomi had told Ruth, I have no other males in my family who would be eligible for you to marry. I can offer you nothing. And knowing that Naomi had nothing to offer, Ruth went with her anyways. But we're told there is this small ray of light in the story. Now here's what I would like to do. We're going to look at the text of uh, Ruth chapter 2. We're going to look at a lot of specific verses. But before we look at those verses, and I've got them all laid out for you in the Bible app if you want to follow along. But before we look at them, I just want to narrate for you what happens in chapter two. It'll be in my own words, but then we'll look at the text. But I want to capture all of our attentions into the story. And so chapter two opens with Ruth and Naomi alone. And Ruth tells Naomi, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find some work. I'm going to go find something. I'm going to go secure some food for us so that we don't starve. She tells Naomi, I'm going to go to some local fields and there I'll glean, which is a technical term, means I'm going to go pick up all the leftovers from the barley and the grain that the harvesters left behind. I'm going to pick up their scraps and bring them home. Now this was actually a formal cultural and legal practice of farmers in this time. It was actually something God commanded all of the farmers among his people to do. They were not allowed to harvest along the edges of their fields, and they weren't allowed to harvest the corners of their fields. This was the way they could provide um, some social security to the poor in their community. So the poor could go after harvest and collect what was around the edges so that they would have something to eat. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go and I'm going to collect the leftovers so that you and I can have something to eat. The narrator then tells us that as Naomi, excuse me, as Ruth is going out among the fields, she just so happens to come across a field owned by a guy named Boaz. Boaz, we learn, is a godly man whose faith has entwined into every aspect of his life. Even his farming and his business relationships are saturated with the Lord. As Ruth is out there working, Boaz notices her one day and asks some of his workers, he says, Who's that young woman out there? I don't recognize her. And his workers say, Well, that, that's Ruth. Uh, she's actually not one of us. She came from Moab with Naomi. And she's been here since sunup working hard. As a matter of fact, she even asked permission to collect our leftovers, which, by the way, Ruth didn't have to even ask permission, but she did. Boaz notices her, and he approaches her. And he says, listen, Ruth, I want you to do something for me. Don't go anywhere else. Don't go to anyone else's field. You stay right here. You collect the grain that comes from my fields. And I'll promise you this. You stick with the other women you see, and my men will protect you. I can't promise that on anyone else's field, but here you'll be protected And Ruth, there's no need to carry water. If you're thirsty, my men will get you water. They'll draw water for you. Ruth says, why? Why why would you treat me like this? You don't know me, and I'm not even one of you. And he says, because I heard what you did for Naomi. I don't know if you know, but she's one of my relatives. I've heard how you were loyal to her, how you vowed to be with her. And so I want to honor you in the way that you have honored her. Besides Ruth, it's not really me protecting you. It's not really me doing this for you. It's the Lord. The Lord is protecting you because you have taken refuge under his wings. As lunchtime approaches, Boaz invites Ruth to his table. And he offers her the best food he has available and fresh wine. And gives her more than she could even eat in one sitting And tells her, take the leftovers home to Naomi for me. When Ruth gets up after lunch to go collecting grain again, he looks at his workers and he says, boys, you let her pick grain from wherever she wants. And as a matter of fact, don't be too good today. Leave a little extra behind. Don't be super efficient. Leave some extra grain. You know what? While I'm thinking about it, boys... Take some of the best grain that we've already reaped, that we've already wrapped up, pull it out of those bundles and leave it for her. Make sure she has what she needs. Ruth works till the end of the day, till the sun goes down. And when the sun goes down, she continues working, separating the good grain from all of the waste. And she goes home with a bag overflowing and loaded with grain more than five gallons of it. She walks home and gets there to Naomi with all of this grain and her leftovers from lunch. And Naomi says, whose field did you go to today? God bless that man. And Ruth is like, yeah, it's this guy named Boaz. I met him today. And the light bulb clicks for Naomi. Wait, did you say Boaz? We're related to him. Not only are we related to him, but, but, but Boaz could be a redeemer for you. Now, that was a technical term for, for a male relative who could marry a widow to care for her and to provide her children so that her lineage would continue. So Naomi says, listen, you do whatever Boaz says. Don't go to anyone else's field. You stick with him. Whatever he says, you do it. And that day... Naomi and Ruth ate well, and Ruth worked for Boaz, or worked in his fields for several seasons. That's the story of chapter two. Now here's what I want to do. Any good story has a section that we would label character development, where we get to learn about who the characters are. And so here's what I want to do. I want to actually look at some of the text and I want us to explore the character of the characters. And so we're going to start with Boaz. And here's what we learned to begin is that Boaz is worthy. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This word worthy denotes character and respected position, a man who was worthy of honor so we learn that boaz is worthy he's someone to be admired later on in the story we learn that boaz is godly look at this in verse 4 and behold boaz came from bethlehem that's where naomi's from and he said to the reapers lord be with you and they answered the lord bless you now on the surface this seems pretty simple and superficial except for it's not because in a story dialogue is always highlighted it's always elevated and this dialogue adds nothing to the story it's completely unnecessary unless unless it's not what the narrator wants us to see is that the Lord, all, in all caps here, representing the name of God, Yahweh, that he revealed himself to be to Moses back in Exodus. That the Lord, that Yahweh has saturated all of Boaz's life, even into his farming and his business practices. If you want to know about the character of someone, you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat others and especially others who are below them on the social ladder and occupational hierarchy. This is Boaz talking to the men who work for him. If you want to know about the nature of a person's relationship to God, you can tell a lot by looking at how God has saturated the details of their everyday life and business. Or is God just something to be reserved for one morning a week? Because for Boaz, it wasn't. The Lord wasn't just reserved for one hour a week. The Lord was incorporated into all of Boaz's life. So not only do we learn that Boaz is worthy, that Boaz is godly, but also that Boaz is generous. Look at verses 8 and 9. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in any other field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Later, Boaz will say this to Ruth. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Boaz provided for Ruth. He gave her more than she could eat and enough for her mother-in-law, Naomi, as well. He protected her. He assured her. And he committed his resources to her for as long as she needed. And so subtly, the author is building this case for who this man, Boaz, is. We're not going to get to the resolution of this story today, which is a bit odd. Sometimes it's hard as preachers to tell part of a story. But even if you don't know the story of Ruth, I'm guessing you can see where the story is headed. But not only do we get this character built up of Boaz, but we also get it for Ruth as well. Here's what we learn about Ruth. The beginning of verse two, and Ruth, the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. Here's what we learn about Ruth. Ruth takes initiative. Ruth said, I, I'm going to take initiative to care for Naomi. I'm going to be the one to go out and work. She didn't wait for Naomi to give her instructions or to tell her to go work. She took initiative. Here's what else we see from, from Ruth. Ruth shows humility. So, Verse 7 is actually the workers giving a report to the, the field owner, Boaz, talking about Ruth. When, when Boaz was like, who's that young lady? They said about her, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So even though she didn't have to, Ruth requested permission. We see it in her actions here in a minute as well. Uh, between her and Boaz, but Ruth shows humility, and here's what else we know: is that Ruth works hard. Look at the second half of verse seven. So she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She has been here since sun up. Then we learn in verse seventeen. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then, after the sun went down, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about. And iff of barley, that's like five and a half gallons. uh, In that ancient measurement form. Ruth takes initiative. Ruth shows humility. And Ruth works hard. Okay, so why does this matter? What's What's the point? Glad you asked. Verse ten. Verse ten. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, that would be Boaz, "'Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner?' But Boaz answered her, "'All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before.'" The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord for the God of Israel under under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth asks the important question, why? Why? Why would you be nice to me? Why would you care for me? Why would you protect me? Why would you provide for me? Why? Why? Here's Boaz's first answer to Ruth, and the storyteller's first answer to us. And that first point is because character does not go unnoticed. Good character does not go unnoticed. In a good narrative or story, the character of the characters matters. It's essential to the story. And Boaz reminds Ruth and us That character matters to God as well. It's not just for a good story, but it's important to God's story in our lives. That who we are when no one else is looking matters. That how we treat those who are below us, so to speak, on a social or occupational or socioeconomic ladder, how we treat those individuals matter that we have good character, that we are generous, that we are godly, that we take initiative, that we're humble, and that we work hard, those things matter not just to a good story, but to God's story in our lives. Good character does not go unnoticed. And here's the second reason why. Goodness, provision, and protection ultimately comes from the Lord. God's goodness, God's provision, God's protection come not from our good works, but by his divine grace, by taking refuge in him. We do not take refuge in our worthiness. We do not take refuge in our abilities. We do not take refuge in our accomplishments or our initiative or even in our hard work. We take refuge in him. This idea is scattered throughout the Scriptures and even the Psalms. I'll give you one example. Psalm, Psalm 57.1 Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Character matters. Our hard work, our humility, our generosity Matter. They don't go unnoticed. But we don't take refuge in those things. We take refuge in the unmerited grace of our God. It's in Him we find protection. It's in Him we find provision. It's in Him we find safety and security. We don't find safety and security in our jobs. We don't find safety and security in our homes or our hometowns. We don't find safety and security among our people. And we don't find safety and security in our spouse. We don't take safety and security in what little or lot of money and possessions we have. We find our safety and security in the Lord. We got to see a glimpse of this in Ruth chapter 1. This is as Naomi was telling both of her daughter-in-laws to not follow her home, but to stay in their own homelands. And Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Even from chapter one, we see Ruth make a decision. I'll take refuge in the Lord. I will find safety and security in him. Even though, Naomi, you have nothing to offer me. You can't offer me relationships. You can't offer me money. You can't offer me a home. You can't offer me a job. You can't offer me anything. But I'll take refuge in the Lord. This was Jesus' heart. And just before he went to the cross, this is what broke his heart when people wouldn't find their refuge in him. Look in Matthew chapter 23 with me. This is Jesus from the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Shortly before he will go to the cross and he cries out, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus had opened his arms to take all those who would find refuge in him. And over and over and over he found rejection specifically in the context of Matthew 23, that the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, would not find refuge in him. They were content to try to seek after finding refuge in their status and in their wealth and in their biblical knowledge. And Jesus said, find refuge in me. I think what the storyteller of Ruth would want us to take away most today Is a reminder that refuge is found in the Lord and the Lord alone. We don't know how long our spouse will be with us. The ladies in this story found that out the hard way. We don't know how long financial security may be around us or if it'll ever be there. But we can still find refuge in the Lord. Our circumstances don't dictate the safety and security we find in Him and Him alone. And it's what Jesus opened His arms wide to offer to all of us. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy for all of us to be tempted to find, to find comfort, to find safety, to find security and other things and other people. Maybe even the holiday that our culture is approaching this week reminds us of some of us in here of maybe what we don't have, what we feel like we're lacking. Thank you that you've reminded us that we take refuge in you and you alone, not in a spouse or significant other. Every time we look at the news, all we're reminded of is is the rising cost of everything. Finances are getting tighter. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we find and take refuge in you and you alone. Not in our bank accounts, not in our possessions, not in our retirement accounts, but in you and you alone. Lord, when the world around us looks so dark when our hearts are full of grief and pain and sorrow and sadness, even in those moments, we can find safety and security and refuge in you and you alone. Lord, thank you. And Jesus, thank you for purchasing our safety and security by your death on the cross we are defined by being your children not by what we've done in the past i'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a moment as we enter into a time of response this time of response is an opportunity for us to respond to who god is and how he's moving and speaking in our hearts and our lives we're going to stand and sing and if you want to stand and sing we invite you to it if you'd like to stay seated and just a a moment and an attitude of thought and prayer, then the invitation is for you to stay seated and to pray. And the table will be open in the back. Offering the bread and the cup that represent Jesus' broken body and His poured out blood for us, that in Him and Him alone, because of what He did on the cross, we find safety and security in Him. And as a part of your worship response, you're invited to the table. To worship and to celebrate his sacrifice for you. That he redeemed you. That he made you whole. And he brought you home. Lord, thank you for this moment and opportunity we have to worship. To respond. As we celebrate your goodness and your faithfulness in all times, in all seasons, in all circumstances. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.